Hey, Regen fam, it's Kyle. I'm so glad to be with you in your living room or on your device today. Uh, today is Sunday, July 5th. And even though you and I are kind of having this moment together digitally right now, I actually recorded everything I'm saying to you on Wednesday the 1st. Our whole team came in on the 1st to get ready for going inside on the 12th. And there's a lot of work to do. Holden's going to actually pan out so you can see. Uh, We got quite comfortable in here on Sunday mornings, just a few of us, so it became easy just to throw stuff around. So tonight we're going to be cleaning up. We're going to be arranging the sanctuary so that uh, we can sit in here socially distanced when we gather on Sunday the 12th. Now, our plans as of today, which again is Wednesday the 1st, are to move back inside on the 12th with limited singing and to invite you to engage with God in worship in some different ways. Now, we also know that COVID cases are increasing around the country. They're increasing here at home. And so we're going to be keeping a close eye on that. We'll be in touch with our oversight team and our lead team, aka staff, to be making those plans. So stay tuned for that. But we are eager to be back together. We know that being church over the next year is just going to look a little different, but we believe God is inviting us into something through that. Not just to persevere until we can get through it, but to receive out of that season preparation for the next thing that God wants to do. That's why we're turning to the book of Acts starting next weekend in a series called Unhindered. I have just seen our community grow in its hunger to understand and be in companionship with God the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to be looking at the book of Acts to see how the early church walked by the Spirit. We're also going to be looking at the early church to see how they did life together, scattered and facing difficult circumstances. So I'm excited to get into that series. Our worship team came in on Wednesday night and uh, led worship, and so you'll get to be a part of that experience here in a minute. But first, let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much that even as I pray on Wednesday night and my friends and my spiritual family watch on Sunday morning, that you are the same God even in those few days span. Thank you that you are big enough to be present here with Holden and I as we pre-record, to be present with every family and every friend that is watching both here in the valley and across the nation and even across the globe. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill every room, every car, every place that we listen so that we can have an encounter with you. Lord, we want to take seriously your word. We want to take seriously worship. But more than being a church that's about preaching or studying the Bible, we want to be a church that's about obedience. More than being a church of worship that is passionate and engaged, we want to be a church that is intimate with you. And so, Father, would you come, would you move in our midst today as we open the word, as we turn our hearts and minds toward you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I tried not to touch, like, my pants or, okay. So, can I just go for it then? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Let's remind Julia to pray at the end of her set or at the end of the song that she'll put before the sermon. Because I'm thinking that segment, a song with her praying into me preaching, I'll pray and then another song, right? And maybe I'll even do a benediction or something, okay? 
Okay, if you have your Bible, I want you to grab it and go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 35 and go all the way through verse 53 of Luke chapter 24. As I already mentioned, next week we're going to begin a months-long series, probably even years-long study of the book of Acts. It is the longest book in the New Testament. The book of Acts contains one quarter of the New Testament's references to the Holy Spirit. One quarter. In fact, no other New Testament book has even half as many references to the Holy Spirit as does the book of Acts. And so while the official title of the book of Acts is actually the Acts of the Apostles, St. John Chrysostom, a church father, said that its proper title really was the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We're teaching the book of Acts to help us in our spiritual family develop an increased dependence on and understanding of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Paul says uh, in the book of Galatians that since we live by the Spirit, we are also to keep in step with the Spirit. A lot of Christians are really unsure about the Holy Spirit. Uh, There is uh, an anxiety or a worry or even a fear of some of the weird things we've heard about or seen on TV or from friends that were part of a church that emphasized the Holy Spirit too much. Uh, Some of us have a functional trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. But we want to be a church that is passionate about God's Word as, and, and a, a church that's led by the Spirit. We want to be a Word-Spirit church. And what we see in the book of Acts is just that. The first people of Jesus walking in the fullness of the Spirit, absolutely committed to Scripture as it proclaims the gospel. Uh, today, I want us to look at the end of the gospel of Luke, and here's why. Luke is the author of both the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, In fact, there are a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap. We'll get into this. It's really interesting, but really the gospel of Luke is a prequel to the book of Acts. And so let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 24. Let me just read to you verses 35 through 53. Then the two from Emmaus, earlier in the chapter, uh, there were two unknown men walking, or two men, they're known. They're walking to a town called Emmaus, which is unknown. Uh, They encounter Jesus. Jesus explains the scripture to them. They meet him in the breaking of the bread and, and disappear. And those two in Emmaus come back and tell the disciples what they've experienced. So back to verse 35. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, touch, look at my feet. You you can see that it's really me. Touch me and make me sure that I am not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41, still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. By the way, did you notice that disbelief, joy, and wonder can happen all at the same time? He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, 
and he ate it as they watched. I love this. This is the resurrected Jesus proving to his disciples that he is alive. But there's also something that I love in this passage about Jesus who's like conquered sin, conquered the devil, put to open shame the works of the evil one. I mean, First John says Jesus appeared to put an end to the works of the evil one. Jesus has done all of that, and he's like, I would like a snack, please. This is my kind of guy. Verse 44, then he said, when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms that it must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. That's the message. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father has promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Then Jesus led them to Bethany and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all their time in the temple praising God. Let me give you a quick rundown of what happens in verses 35 through 43. See, the resurrected Jesus appears in the midst of his disciples. Uh, They're all huddled together wondering about what's next. And Jesus shows up and finds them afraid. He finds them doubtful. He finds them scared. He shows up. He proves that he's really alive. He proves that he's not a ghost. And then to these frightened and scared and doubtful disciples, Jesus gives a task, which we'll get to in a minute. Now, here's what's interesting about this passage. You know, up in this part, verses 35 through about 41, the disciples have disbelief, they have doubt, they have fear, their hearts are troubled. But then when you get to verses 50, 51, 52, 53, they have great joy. They, they are praising God. That is a radical transformation in just about 20, 25 verses to go from fear to joy. What accounts for such a radical shift in these disciples? Well, it's all in verses 44 through 49. He says, when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms. That's the whole Old Testament. He said, all that must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. And it was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem, the message being, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of these things. Verse 49, now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. It is the promise of the Father, it is the promise of the Holy Spirit that changes their joy, uh, that gives, brings them to joy out of fear. It is It is the promise of the Holy Spirit that turns their doubt into confidence. See, how does he do this? Well, first, it says that Jesus opens their mind to understand the Scripture. How does Jesus do this? Does he, like, wave his hands and they have some magical experience? No. Jesus has a Bible study with them. He he preaches the Scriptures to them. He takes them back through the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. He takes them through the prophets. He takes them through the wisdom literature. 
And he reviews everything that he has already taught them and shows the summary of his teaching and the summary of his life, which is explained in verse 46, that it was written long ago that the Messiah, that Jesus, would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. This is the summary of Jesus' teaching. These are the events that prove Jesus to be sent from the Father. These are the events that prove Jesus to be the long-awaited King and Messiah of Israel. It proves that Jesus is the one that God has chosen to bring the story of Israel to its proper end, to its proper fulfillment. Jesus says this message, this gospel, is to be proclaimed. It's to be shared. It's to be talked about. But notice, notice that Jesus says how it is to be proclaimed and to whom it is to be proclaimed. How and to whom. See, in the case of the latter, this is a proclamation to all the nations, to all the people, starting in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, God, is ground zero for God's plan to bless the nations by creating the multi-ethnic family of Jesus, just as he promised David long ago. It's in Jerusalem. This message is to be proclaimed to all the nations, to everyone. This is why the book of Revelation says, and then I saw a crowd, of, a crowd, a multitude of every tribe and tongue and nation. When we see Jesus face to face, we will stand shoulder to shoulder with people of different skin color than us, with people of different culture and different languages, and we will all gather around the throne of God and worship him. That's to whom we proclaim. But notice how we proclaim it. Jesus says it is to be proclaimed in the authority of Jesus' name. That is, we use the authority Jesus imparts to his followers as the king of the universe. You and I operate in royal authority, in spiritual authority, which is found when we wrap our lives around Jesus to the last detail. See, uh, there's this scene in the book of Acts where this magician wants the spiritual authority that Paul has and offers to pay him for it. What he doesn't understand, this magician, is that spiritual authority doesn't come from money. Spiritual authority comes from obedience to Jesus and wrapping your life around his life. So we're supposed to proclaim, um, we're supposed to proclaim to all the nations in the authority of Jesus' name this message, the forgiveness of sins for all who repent. The forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You see, from a certain perspective, sin is having allegiance or loyalty to something else or to someone else, someone or something that's not King Jesus. Repentance is the means by which we disavow ourselves from that thing or that someone and give our allegiance to Jesus. Forgiveness is the approach of a gracious king who welcomes traitors to his cause and to his table. I want us to step into the reality of this passage and this message that you and I are called to proclaim. And by the way, I looked at the word proclaim. I looked it up in Greek. And you know what it means? It means proclaim. It means you and I and everyone who calls in the name of Jesus has a message to share. Listen, Jesus is speaking to a ragtag bunch of mostly uneducated Jewish men, and he has just tasked them with preaching the gospel to all the nations of the world. Some of these guys hadn't ever left their hometown before they met Jesus. Now they've barely been out of our equivalent of the Mahoning Valley. And now Jesus says, your job is to preach to all the nations. 
Here's these uneducated Jews. They're huddled in a room. They're hiding from the Roman authorities who put Jesus to death at the behest of a corrupt pseudo-spiritual puppet government. Jesus, from a certain perspective, catch this, Jesus, from a certain perspective, is a terrorist. He's a disturber of the peace. And the war on terror didn't end when we killed bin Laden. It kept going. You see, these 12 men and their hundred-odd friends are public enemies. And we know this because when they start preaching the risen Jesus, do you know what happens to them? They're thrown in jail. They're stoned to death. They're persecuted. Listen, I want you to see Jesus suddenly appearing in the room with his closest followers, giving them a task to proclaim to all the nations. And I want you to see him through the corridors of time and space. I want you to see him looking over their shoulders right into your eyes. And you might have one of those moments where you see Jesus looking at you and you're kind of looking around like, oh, he's got to mean, he's got to mean Kyle. We pay him to do that. Uh, he's got to mean Holden. Holden's gone to ministry school. Uh, he's got to mean Art. Art's a missionary. Oh, he's, he's got to mean Steph. Steph went to Bible college. No, he's looking at you. He's looking at you. The moment you said yes to Jesus, the moment you gave Jesus your allegiance, Jesus dragooned you into this singular task proclaiming to all the nations with the authority of Jesus forgiveness of sins for all who repent. This isn't something you can pay done. This is not something you can avoid, at least not for long, at least not in a church like ours. Jesus wants you to proclaim the authority of his kingdom, his vision for human flourishing, not the vision of human flourishing that comes from a political party or ideology. And Jesus wants you to proclaim the authority of his kingdom wherever you are. They started in Jerusalem because that's where they, are, they were. But you might start in Howland or Gerard or Cortland or Garrettsville or because our church has kind of grown in its reach in some weird ways as we moved online in South Dakota or Arizona or New York or Nashville Wherever your feet are right now, Jesus has tasked you to proclaim the gospel to all the nations and the authority of the name of Jesus. This is an impossible task. This, at the very least, is almost insurmountable. It is overwhelming. So Jesus offers a promise in verse 49. He says, now I'm going to send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. That happens in Acts chapter 2. You see, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit in agreement with the Father's promise. The Father from long ago has promised to send the Holy Spirit, his own life, his own power, his own spirit, his own breath, on average people like you and me. Like in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, the prophet declares, and it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Or Ezekiel 39, 29, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares Yahweh, the God, Yahweh God. Uh, Isaiah 44, verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land 
and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. I love Ezekiel 37 verse 14. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land and then you will know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken, I will do it. The promise of the, of the Father from ages ago was to send the Holy Spirit. Again, God's life, God's breath, God's power, the personified overflow of the love and unity between Father and Son, the very spirit and essence of Jesus. He promises to pour the Holy Spirit out on his people permanently. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was given for certain times and certain reasons, but now the Holy Spirit will permanently indwell everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus says that the time, here in Luke 24, Jesus says that the time for the Father's promise to be fulfilled has come. It's time to see the fulfillment, and and, in order to receive it, he says the disciples are to stay in the city until the, old, until the Holy Spirit comes. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will fill them, it says, fill them with power from heaven. Really, metaphorically, this verb means to be clothed with power from heaven. Romans thirteen twelve says, The night is gone, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Romans thirteen fourteen says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be clothed with power from heaven when the Holy Spirit is given. It is the promise of the Father, fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus, given to us as a gift and a foretaste of heaven that gives us the power we need for following Jesus in this cultural moment. That is what changes. It's the receiving of the promise of the Holy Spirit that changes their fear into joy and their doubt into confidence. confidence. It's the same thing for you and me. Listen, if we look at the culture around us and we feel afraid, we feel doubtful, if you think of stepping into ministry, of proclaiming the gospel to your friends and neighbors, and you think, I can't do that, if you lack confidence, if you're afraid, can I tell you that it is walking with the Holy Spirit that transforms fear into, into joy and, and doubt into confidence? You see, uh, in the early 2000s, the Barna Group released a book. It was called Unchristian, and it's all about what non-Christians think of Christians. And generally, the findings aren't too favorable. Uh, Christians are perceived as political, as old-fashioned, as out of touch with reality, judgmental, hypocritical, boring, confusing. None of those are very good words. Studies done in the early 2000s showed that all of our efforts to pass the faith on to the next generation were failing, that teenagers were leaving the church in droves and never returning. Another Barna study came out and it was put into a book called You Lost Me. That further echoed the findings of the earlier book on Christian. It said that the church is exclusive, overprotective, shallow, anti-science, repressive, impatient toward those who doubt. Listen, before COVID ever came into our imaginations and into our language, the American church was in crisis. Before Regen stepped into the scene in 2014 to offer people a fresh glimpse of Jesus, the American church was in crisis. We are tasked 
in this cultural moment where Christians are thought of as a long list of bad things. We are tasked in this cultural moment of expressive individualism, of, of politically charged everything, of, 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 of secularism, of over-sexualized imaginations. We are charged in this moment with proclaiming the authority of Jesus' name, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. But here's the thing, my friends, no one is listening We have been given a huge task. And let me tell you, the answer isn't good graphic design because people can always out-design us. Jenna Byler does great. She does our graphics, but someone can always make something else look better. The answer isn't great programs because someone else will do something someone else likes more. The answer isn't community because eventually you get hurt. The answer isn't great preaching because you can find preachers far better than me without the inconvenience of having to be around people. It's called podcasts. The answer isn't great worship because there is better music available on the radio or on Spotify. The answer to being the church that our world needs right now, the answer comes in receiving the promise of the Father. The answer comes in receiving the promise of the Father sent to us by Jesus. The answer is being clothed in power from the Holy Spirit. The answer is keeping, in the words of Paul, keeping in step with the Spirit. How how do we do that? How do we become clothed with the power of the Spirit? It all comes down to one little word. It comes down to Jesus' word in verse 49, stay. Stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes. The verb here that Luke uses is unusual because usually it means something like to sit down, which is why the old school King James Version translates it as tarry. In the language of the Old Testament, it's waiting for the Lord. It's creating time and space in the chaos of our lives to make ourselves available to the presence of God. Studying and meditating on Scripture, engaging in prayer, journaling, going on prayer walks, being in a prayer group. We will not be clothed with the Spirit by just running around and being active. Instead, we will be clothed by the Spirit when we become a church that slowly and patiently and quietly sits in the presence of God and absorbs his presence. And let me tell you what, if you aren't doing that individually, and if you're married or if you have kids, if you're not doing that, or even if you're single with roommates, if you're not doing that with your house and your family, nothing significant is ever going to happen corporately that doesn't begin individually. A a few years ago, uh, a mentor of mine, Chael, said that he didn't want anything in his church to happen that didn't come first from his own home. I've so resonated with that over the last few months as Steph and I have pressed in together as I've crafted more time to be with the Father, to tarry, to wait. Where are the spaces in your life where you are available to God? Not with your phone on or doing other five other things. Where are the moments that in the quiet you are available to God so that you can say like Samuel does, here I am, Lord. I picked up a book uh, about a year or two ago. It was required reading for a seminary class, and truth be told, I didn't read it until I picked it up, I think, sometime this winter. 
It's written by a British pastor named Samuel Chadwick. And he says, The church has lost the note of authority, the secret of wisdom and the gift of power through persistent and willful neglect of the Holy Spirit of God. Confusion and impotence are inevitable when the wisdom and resources of the world are substituted for the presence and power of the Spirit of God. He goes on to say, The Spirit has never abdicated his authority, nor relegated his power. Neither Pope nor Parliament, neither Conference nor Council is supreme in the Church of Christ. The Church is is man-managed instead of God-governed. When that happens, it is doomed to failure. A ministry that is college-trained but not Spirit-filled works no miracles. The church that multiplies committees and neglects prayer may be fussy, noisy, enterprising, but it labors in vain and spends its strength for naught. It is possible to excel in mechanics and fail in dynamic. There is a superabundance of machinery. What is wanting is power. To run an organization needs no God. Man can supply the energy, enterprise, and enthusiasm for things human. The real work of a church depends on the power of the Spirit. I read those words and thought they could refer to this cultural moment where churches are trying to do everything they can through mechanics and presentation to win people to Jesus. What's so interesting to me is Samuel Chadwick wrote these words while he was on his deathbed in 1932. Church, we're contending against almost a hundred years of ignorance of the Spirit. We are contending against almost a hundred years of the Holy Spirit being relegated to the wild and crazy-eyed people on late-night television. What I am calling us to, individually in his families and as a church, is to slowly and patiently and with a spirit of waiting and receiving, to walk with the Spirit, to be clothed in the Holy Spirit's power. Here's why. Not so that we can have really cool experiences or stories to tell. Not so that we can have really passionate worship nights that make us feel good. No, so for this, for this one reason, so that we can co- proclaim, we can proclaim in the authority of his name to all the nations the message of forgiveness of sins through repentance. King Jesus has given us all the resources we need to be a church that leaves a lasting mark on our community As we prepare to study the book of Acts, I'm so excited to see what God wants to do in my life and in your life as we learn to wait, to tarry for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, I give you thanks that you keep your promises. I I thank you that you keep your word so that when you promise the Holy Spirit, that you promise to pour out your Holy Spirit on all flesh like water on dry ground, that you did it. God, may we receive the promises that you have for us, not only in the power of the Holy Spirit, but even in his comforting presence. Lord, in those times when we wait, when we make ourselves available to you in those times of quiet and devotion, Lord, would you come and be fresh? Would you move among us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we could be more like Jesus? King Jesus, we offer you our loyalty and our fealty again today. And I pray, Father, that you would use us as we become people of your presence, that you would use us as partners in your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.